Welcome to our favorite patrons. It's October. What? what? We are going to talk about what you chose. I polled you guys. Yes, at the last minute because I forgot to do it sooner, but I gave you two days to, to vote and you guys voted to hear about horror movies that are based on true stories. And there was still a fair amount of votes. So obviously our patrons, you know, you guys pay attention, which is mm-hmm. good because Cindy doesn't. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> this is my busiest time of year. I have a ton of writing to do. It's ridiculous how much writing I'm doing. Fun, but you know. Busy. So, yeah. Horror movies that are based on true stories. I was really excited about this one. When I saw the poll on there, I didn't even get a chance to vote, but I looked at it and I was like, yes, awesome. Let's do that. Oh, so that's the one you would have chosen. It is what I would have chosen. Nice. I think I might have chosen Exorcisms Gone Wrong. What is with you and super sad stories? I know. Gosh. (laughs) I think it's the exorcism thing. I don't really believe in that kind of thing, so it intrigues me, I guess. Cindy does love a good exorcism. (laughs) One of the movies I chose involves that. And no, it's not The Exorcist. Even though that one is also based on a true story truth but so yeah i chose two movies cat chose a movie and then uh subject matter (laughs) yeah no subject matter is good okay so we're gonna jump right in you want to go first or you want me to i will go first because my first one i so i haven't seen this movie But it sounded really good. And then I did some research into the uh, influence for this this movie. And it looked awesome. I will probably watch this movie at some point. This movie is called Ravenous. And it came out in 1999. Mm -hmm. Would you like the synopsis of the movie? Or do you want me to just go in? Just go for it. I, I actually didn't focus much on the movies myself. I just okay. focused on the I didn't either. Them. I didn't either. Okay. So if you guys want to watch this movie, great. If not, you can at least know the backstory of it. Ravenous is based on the story of Alfred or Alfred Packard. His name is spelled both ways, and he responded to both throughout his life, so we're just going to call him Alfred. Alfred Packer was born January 21st, 1842. Oh, wow. Died April 23rd, 1907 at the age of 65. Mm -hmm. He was an American prospector, a self-proclaimed wilderness guide, held odd jobs, all kinds of of stuff. Alfred was born near Pittsburgh on January 21st, 1842. He was one of three children. Later on, his family moved to LaGrange County, Indiana. He didn't have a very good relationship with his family, and 
therefore he moved to Minnesota in his late teens and worked as a shoemaker. Now, Alfred really wanted to do something with his life, and so he tried to serve in the Union Army. He was discharged eight months later due to epilepsy. He then moved to the, he moved south, so not all the way to the south, but he moved southward from Minnesota, went farther down south, enlisted again for the Union Army, but again was discharged due to epilepsy. This caused Alfred to not really feel like he had a purpose. He didn't really know what to do with his life. So he traveled west and over nine years, he worked odd jobs as a hunter, a wagon team master, a ranch hand, a field worker, etc. He, he did it all. However, his seizures and poor attitude kept him from maintaining a job. Those who knew him didn't like him due to distrust because he was a pathological liar. He was extremely argumentative and he had a reputation for stealing. Alfred was not a good guy. Sounds like a great guy. I know, right? Bestest (laughs) friends. Yeah. Now, at this point, Alfred is pretty down on his luck. He doesn't have a whole lot going on in his life. And in November of 1873, there was a group of 20 men starting in the territory of Utah that would later become Salt Lake City. So that's where Mm -hmm. they are. And they're moving towards Breckenridge, Colorado for gold mining. As we know, back then, gold mining was huge. Everyone was going everywhere to get on the rush. They got bit mm-hmm. by the gold bug. Mm-hmm. That is when they came across Alfred. Now, again, Alfred is pretty down on his luck. He has no money. He has no supp- supplies. But he tells this group of 20 men that he is a, a, an amazing guide a a land you know guide he can he can take people through all kinds of terrain and territories and all that kind of stuff alfred had been a guide previously in amongst his many odd jobs however anyone that had been with him on these adventures we'll call them said that that was not his strong suit. He had a tendency to get lost. He had a terrible <laughs> sense of direction. Not a good guide. Wonderful. Right? This group of men, though, they didn't know that about him. They just, he said, you know, I'm awesome. Even though I don't have anything, I will get you there and we'll make some amazing gold. So the men said, okay, fine. You, know, you can come along. Now, like I said... Alfred had epilepsy, so he was prone to to many seizures, along with his sour attitude and getting into arguments with men of the group and such. That caused the party to slow down quite a bit. Now, any of you guys that have been or know of the terrain of Utah to Colorado in November, it's getting pretty sketchy. Winter time. Mm-hmm. We're seeing some snow. The group gets basically snowed in. They're they're at this spot in the wilderness and they're just like, guys, like 
we're running low on supplies. We don't really have a whole lot going on. You know, we're, we're, tr we're really, really slowed down. We're getting tons of snow going on. What do we do? 11 men of the party decided to continue on and because they were not in charge of the wagons and the supplies and the horses and such. So they said, we'll go ahead. We will get to the nearest civilization. We will get supplies. We will bring it back to you guys. Um, or, you know, just meet us there when the snow lets up because there, there won't be as many of us for the supplies, for the rations to go around. There will be 11 less of us. So mm -hmm. we're going to go on ahead you take care of yourselves. We'll meet you there. Okay. Right. So now we're down to 20 minus 11. That's, that's nine. That's nine. <laughs> <laughs> Math is not my strong suit. Listen, it's late at night right now. <laughs> we are tired. Right. The party, the party of the remaining nine men continues on. And they come into contacts with a Native American tribe. This Native American tribe is known for helping uh, settlers along the way and travelers and such. They're, they're very friendly Native Americans. And they're like, guys, what the heck are you doing? Like, you do not want to continue on this journey right now, okay? You need just stay here with us. We have food. We have shelter. Just hang out until the snow is done you know it's so like march right mm -hmm. so just hang out with us we will keep you safe and fed you can you can continue on later okay don't die on this crazy journey <laughs> the gold rush movement was big though and there was a lot of people going to colorado for the gold and the guys were like, listen, we appreciate that, but we cannot stay. Okay, we got to get in on this. We cannot let everyone else get the gold before us. Mm. The Native American chief was like, okay, I get you. Obviously, there's no change in your minds. Here's some rations, some supplies to get you guys through. Here is the route that you should go. You need to go this way if you want to make it there. Alfred opens his big mouth and says, no, I know a better way. We're going to go through the mountains mm -hmm. instead of around the mountains. These are the, the San Juan mountains. And he says, follow me. We're going to go this way. Five of the nine men said, sure, we'll follow you. Four, the other four men were like, no, we're not doing that. <laughs> that sounds like a really terrible idea. And they went their own way. Alfred leads his five men on a 75-mile journey into the mountains. Skip forward two months, and Alfred comes out of the woods near Sagachua, Colorado. Let me guess. He was well fed, but none of the other five guys were with him. <laughs> he was alone. He was alone. Sa uh -huh. Sagwash. Sagwatch. Colorado. He was alone. He was carrying a rifle, a knife, a steel coffee pot, and a satchel. 
Hmm. Comes onto the settlement, busts into the the local tavern and is like almost frozen. He's tired. He's weary. You know, he's just really messed up. They rush him in and they're like, oh my gosh, what happened? You know? And he says he's been starving. Uh, his party left him. They they just said that, you know, he got abandoned because of his seizures. And he's just been living off of berries and roots and just trying to make it by and going along as best he can trying to survive this just awful train, right? This is his story. Mm-hmm. Now, the locals were like... Um, yeah, your face isn't as gaunt as we've seen other people be. (laughs) You know, you're not as skeletal as you should be with this story that you're telling. But okay, okay, whatever. Now, there was another man that came into town shortly after Packer arrived. This man's name was Preston Nutter. Great last name. I love it. (laughs) He was part of the original party that had went around instead of through the mountains he comes into town and he finds Alfred in the local tavern drinking and carrying on and such and he's like bro what happened what's going you know where is everybody Alfred tells him a story that part his party of five men had given him this rifle had given him this knife and Nutter was like I know those guys we've traveled together a lot they wouldn't just leave themselves with only one rifle when they had two and this is this guy's favorite knife he wouldn't just give that to you they wouldn't leave you behind like they might leave you behind Mm -hmm. because you're you're an asshole but you know (laughs) You're, you're saying that they gave you this stuff and then just left you behind? No, I don't believe yeah. that. So Nutter goes and reports his sp- suspicions to local authorities, and Alfred is brought in for questioning. Now, after many, many interrogations, this is his signed confession, and I'm going to read it off of the Wikipedia page. Mm. Old Man Swan died first and was eaten by the other five persons about ten days out of camp. So this is after they left the the Native American camp. Mm -hmm. Four or five days afterwards, Humphreys dies and was also eaten. He had Mm. about $133. I found the pocketbook and took the money. Sometime afterwards, while I was carrying wood... The butcher was killed, as the other two told me accidentally, and he was also eaten. Bell shot California, that was one of the guy's names, with, it was his nickname. Bell shot California with Swan's gun, and I killed Bell, shot him. I covered up the remains and took a large piece along, then traveled 14 days into the agency Bell wanted to kill me with his rifle uh, stuck in a tree and broke his gun. Right, so he's saying that over a period of time as they're traveling, the men start dying 
and they're eaten mm-hmm. in like the Donner Party in order to stay alive. And then when it was just Bell and Mr. Bell and Alfred, Mr. Packer, left, Bell tried to kill, he's saying that Bell tried to kill him to eat him, and Alfred fought back and killed Bell instead. This yeah. is his, his signed confession. Eh, right? I'm not right? buying that. Everyone's like, okay, sounds pretty legit. We've had stuff like that happen before. Technically, cannibalism isn't illegal unless it's that the person died in malice, right? So if you killed someone and then ate them, then it's illegal. But if they die, I mean... And we just happen to nom nom. (laughs) So Alfred goes on, lives, you know, moves, moves around, moves goes does his own thing and in March, in the following august the bodies of those five men were found mm. the corn the the men, man who found them brought up the coroner and law enforcement and there was a big investigation the five men were all found together in various mm. stages of decomposition and found with that extreme violence had befallen them. Mostly Hmm. blows to the head, chunks missing from the skull, and broken bones. It appeared that the men had been hit with an axe or a hatchet in the head, Hmm. and that was most likely the killing blow. Hmm. Three of the men were mostly intact. Flesh and muscle were excised from choice and meaty locations. Ew. (laughs) No attempt was made to consume bone marrow or organs. Well, good? I don't know. That's ew. Because obviously whoever ate these guys did not understand anatomy because bone marrow holds a lot of nutrients in it. And organs have a lot of protein in them. So that's really going to sustain you through, you know, that's why you have liver and onions. Although, personally, I can't stand liver and onions because I'm not going to eat a filter organ. Gross. Now, again, Alfred's long gone by the time that they discover these bodies. In March of 1883, Alfred was found. He was using an alias of one of the other party members of the original mm-hmm. 20 men that was still alive. Oh my gosh. He was like, he you know what? Man. He was like, you know what? I'm going to use this guy's name. I like this guy's name. But he didn't know that that guy was still alive. He thought maybe he uh-huh. died. So this man, so they bring Alfred in and after many, many trials on June 8th, 1886, Alfred was convicted of voluntary manslaughter and sentenced to 40 years in prison. At Mm. the time, this was the longest custodial sentence in the United States. Mm. However, Alfred was then paroled on February 8th, 1901, after having only served 18 years in prison. He died in 1907 from a stroke 
and people that knew him up until the end said that he was a vegetarian. <laughs> mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. So he changed his ways. But most people know Alfred Packer as the Colorado cannibal. Mm, the Colorado cannibal. Mm-hmm. As can be seen, depicted in the movie Ravenous, released in 1999. That's messed up. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I, I also don't believe that they just died off and they ate each other. But it sounds like that definitely didn't happen. Um, so I chose spooky ones. Okay. So my first choice is The Entity which is a 1982 movie that's rated R. It's two hours and five minutes long. So it stars Barbara Hershey, Ron Silver, and David Laviasa. The movie was based on a book, and the book was called The Entity, and it was written by Frank DeFelita. DeFelita? Yeah. So the book was based off a true story. So the true story is a 1974 case of Doris Bither. Now, this has its own Wikipedia page, just in case you're wondering. <laughs> this It's called um, the Doris Bither case, I believe is what that was called. So basically, she was a single mother of four. She had four sons. That's rough. Yeah, they were all by different men. So this is what happened. She had a really bad childhood abusive and all that. And she actually got disowned in her teenage years and kicked out. So then she went on, she made some poor life choices. Um, and at some point she had these four sons and decided she wanted to make a fresh start of it. She needed to have a better life. And so she moved with her four sons to try and do this. Cause they, they were living in squalor. They were living in, a house that had been condemned uh, by the city. Mm-hmm. So very poor conditions. So she moved. The house they moved into, also not great. But she's trying really hard to do this fresh start for her kids. So they moved to Culver City in California. She started having weird things happen to her. So mostly poltergeist-type activity. So like things being thrown and her getting thrown around. Oh boy. Uh, getting attacked. But the main part of her reports, the part that they really emphasize, is that she reported getting raped by this entity. Oh. She, she contacted a parapsychologist named Barry Taff. What you need to know about Barry Taff is that he, at the time, was working with some kind of investigative type of research facility that that had to do with paranormal stuff but they were later debunked like if they found out that the leader of that organization was very corrupt and they were doing really bad things so he was working for a bad place so some people say well maybe his take on this whole case shouldn't even be considered because he was you know, associated with those people. He was full of shit. That's what he was. Exactly. Doris reported being attacked and raped. She also reported luminous, transparent human shapes and then poltergeist events. Her children witnessed these things. 
her kids agreed that these things were happening to both her and them. She would have bruises all over her body and scrapes and cuts, and she'd have scars from previous wounds that had healed. Like, she had evidence on her of being beaten up and stuff, so I don't know. Poor woman. Gosh, first you're inflicted with four boys, and (laughs) then a rapist ghost? Like, shit. (laughs) inflicted i have three boys <laughs> yeah i feel sorry for I- you too <laughs> i'm inflicted <laughs> that's amazing that's that's a great way to put it <laughs> i love my boys oh goodness gracious brick has two boys just all the boys we have all the boys so we bring the boys to the yard <laughs> oh my lord <laughs> My milkshake brings on. No, get back to the story. (laughs) Okay. Awful. So investigators' first visit with her was on August 22nd, 1974. They had repeated visits with her from that day on for 10 weeks. So they, their first visit was August 22nd. And then they just kept coming back um, for 10 weeks until they finally stopped visiting with her or she moved because she did move around a lot after that trying to get away from it um the investigators themselves now mind you this is this guy and some of his investigator friends from this phony place they reported objects falling off of shelves by themselves strange lights like orbs and and lights shooting around the room and stuff bad odors and cold spots The only evidence they ever actually showed, like actual evidence, they took some pictures of lights, but they, they said that they were lights that were shooting around the room, but in the pictures, it's just lights, like a orb type situation. Uh, and they took it with 30, a 35 millimeter camera, and they also used an instant film Polaroid SX-70 just for those of you out there who know anything about cameras, I do not. So those are the cameras they used. And that's the only evidence they ever caught. Um, the activity was said to fade over those 10 weeks. So as they kept coming back and visiting with her, they reported that the phenomena was happening less and less and less. She moved herself and her four sons several times trying to get away from this thing but she said that it kept following her and it kept attacking her although she did say that it seemed weaker every time she moved the entity seemed weaker now i want to know did she move around in the same neighborhood did she move to another town like where she moved to i don't know the places she moved but i do believe it was pretty vast like it might have even been states Like she was moving all around, but that was her life anyway. That was all that she really knew to Mm -hmm. that point anyhow. So, and she had some drug abuse. She had some alcohol abuse. She had been beaten as a kid. And then she was beaten regularly by the fathers of her children. So she had a really rough, rough life. So, So there's a lot of people that think, Maybe this wasn't actually paranormal. Maybe this was some kind of psychosis or, you know, mental illness or whatever. Um, Out of her sons, she has one that is still living, I do believe. They never gave his name. 
She has one son who's very outspoken about the whole thing still to this day. He swears that it all really happened. And he says that he and his brothers witnessed their mom being thrown around the room by an invisible force, being beaten up. And they would also hear it happening in her bedroom because his bedroom was right next door. So he said they witnessed it with their own eyes. They heard it happening. Doris Bither passed away in 1999 of natural causes. I want to say that it said she had like a heart attack or something, cardiac arrest. I can't remember exactly. And when I tried to look it up, I couldn't find it. But she did die in 1999. Um, But yeah, that's the true story behind the movie The Entity. All right. So check it out if you would like. I have not seen that one. I don't think I've seen that one either. I have seen the second one that I chose, but I have not seen this one. But it sounds like a decent movie. Mm-hmm. I kind of want to see it now. So my next movie choice is The Right. R-I-T-E. I have seen that one. I've seen that one too, and I love that movie. It's a good movie. I adore anything that Anthony Hopkins is in, though. Yes, girl. Yes. So, The Right came out in 2011. It's PG-13. It's one hour, 54 minutes long. And it stars Colin O'Donohue, Anthony Hopkins, and I do not know how to pronounce this lady's name. Ciaran Hins is what I'm going with. And it's a good movie. I have seen it and I like it, so I do recommend it. The story is that this priest is questioning his faith and he gets sent off to Rome to take some classes and study to help him get his faith back. But they make him take a class on how to do an exorcism. So the first question of this this website says, are there really classes about exorcism? The answer is yes. At the Vatican, they do have classes on how to perform an exorcism. I thought that was interesting. They do. It still goes on today, right? But Mm -hmm. you have to, I mean, obviously exorcisms today are extremely rare And before that, it was even really, really hard to get approval from Mm -hmm. the the church to perform an exorcism because they had to make sure, you know, beyond all reasonable doubt that this person Mm -hmm. was in fact possessed. Well, yes. And they're, they're extremely rare in the U.S. They're not quite as rare in Rome. In that area, they believe in exorcisms a whole lot more they're Mm -hmm. more common but they're still rare mind you did the real michael kovac take classes in rome to become an exorcist so the whole thing is there really was a priest who got sent to rome to take these classes and it says yes according to the right true story father gary thomas who is portrayed by actor colin o'donohue in the movie attended exorcism classes, among other classes, during his nine-month stay. So he arrived in Rome during the summer of 2005. Did the priest and the journalist work together after meeting in exorcism, exorcism classes? Yes, they did. 
a male journalist. In the movie, it's a female journalist because, you know, they got to have a girl in there somewhere. Of course. But in the true story, it was a male journalist that he that was in the exorcism class with him, which begs the question, how did a journalist get to go to exorcism class? Like, can just anybody take that? Seems kind of weird. Since they were the only two Americans in the class, they quickly bonded. Did the real Michael Kovac follow a practicing exorcist like Anthony Hopkins' character? Yes, he did. So during his sabbatical in Rome, um, Reverend Thomas decided it was important not only to learn about exorcisms, but to experience them as well. He sought out exorcists in the city to apprentice uh, with his stay and was accepted by Father Carmine, who is the real Lucas Trevant that's in the movie. Uh, During their time together, he witnessed approximately 80 exorcisms. Good Lord. What year was this? This was in 2005, I think it was. Holy crap. Yeah, they still do them, like, kind of a lot over there. All right. It's still rare, but it's not as rare as it is in the U.S. I didn't realize that. Mm Mm-hmm. Did a woman really spit up nails during an exorcism? (laughs) You want to guess what the answer to this question is? No? Yes. (gasps) It says yes. But, there's a but. Okay. But the true story behind the right reveals that it was not witnessed by Father Gary Thomas himself. According to the book, The Right, The Making of a Modern Exorcist by Matt Bagelow, the incident was told to Father Thomas by another priest who was present when a woman vomited seven black nails, one of which he kept after the rest liquefied before his eyes. Hearsay. I don't believe it. I know, right? I was really bummed out when I read the butt part. (laughs) Father Carmine, who was the basis for Anthony Hopkins' character, Father Lucas Trevant, has not seen this manifestation either. However, the Vatican's chief exorcist who trained him, Father Gabriel Amorth, has. He has more than 70,000 exorcisms to his name and says that he has seen nails and other objects, including shards of glass and radio equipment parts, vomited by possessed people. Radio equipment parts? I'm sorry, 70,000? Yeah. (laughs) That sounds exhausting. There's so many questions that I have, but (laughs) the main one is, why radio equipment parts? Like, of all the things for you to vomit up while you're possessed. Because that's, that's the weird. best way of communication. <laughs> nice. Okay. I see what you did there. Did Father Thomas work in a funeral home? Yes, he did. While attending a funeral as a teenager, um, Gary Thomas was approached by one of the owners and asked if he wanted to work there part-time. At the age of 14, he accepted employment and began working odd jobs at the Nauman Lincoln Roos Mortuary. So somebody went up to a 14-year-old who was at a funeral and said, Hey, do you want to work here at this funeral home? (laughs) I dig it. 
That's weird. That's really weird. Listen, if you've ever actually met a mortician, you know that they are really odd ducks. I know a mortician. A girl that I went to high school with, I think she still is a mortician. I know she was one for a long time, but I think she still is. And the irony is that in high school, she was like the funnest, goofiest, most upbeat. She still is. She still is that person. But she works at a funeral home. It's just the weirdest thing. I don't know. She's Maybe the her positivity life like of a helps. party. Oh, geez. <laughs> Here we go. I hope she listens to this episode. Oh, this is a bonus episode. Darn it. I gotta get Lori to be a patron. <laughs> Maybe I'll just send her a, a link anyway. <laughs> no, my, uh, my husband's uncle <clears throat> was a mortician that ran a, a funeral home and he was a very odd duck. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know that I could do it, but you know, I don't think I could. It's good that some people can because we need that job. And so, it's recession proof. That is true. <laughs> if anything, <laughs> God, I'm so morbid. It gets more popular during a recession, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, was Gary Thomas, so Father Thomas, was he always a man of the cloth? No. Although he had always considered it, in researching the true story behind the Wright movie, it was discovered that after graduating from Sierra High School in San San Mateo, California, he attended the University of San Francisco and went on to study mortuary science. He worked in the funeral home business until the age of 25 when he decided to study at St. Patrick's Seminary. Five years later, he became an ordained Catholic priest. He moved up the ranks pretty quick. Yeah. How many exorcists are there in the United States? Three. (laughs) As of February 2011, priest Gary Thomas estimated there are between 25 and 50 exorcists in the United States. It has been suggested that every diocese should have an exorcist, in which case there should be nearly 200. So maybe they're understaffed. (laughs) You guys, there's a class you can take in Rome. (laughs) Oh my Lord. And you can help, (laughs) can help fill this position that apparently needs. Now I'm just picturing like TV commercials, like how they recruit for the military, right? You too can be (laughs) an exorcist. Sign up today. Uh, You're a little Catholic church. Has Father Thomas ever witnessed a death due to a possession? Yes. No. Oh. Not, no, not according to the right, the ma- the book that they wrote. But they don't elaborate. They just say no. <laughs> so he has not wit- witnessed a death. If he had, he might be in jail because <laughs> that tends to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, did the frogs really appear? No. But when investigating the right real story, it was discovered that Father Carmine did witness a woman vomit a live black frog soon after it dissolved into liquid. You know, why do the things that these people keep vomiting up dissolve into liquid? Because they're demonic in origin and cannot survive outside the host? 
Wow. Okay. That was a good one. I was going to say because it never really happened, but your answer is spookier. So (laughs) (laughs) we'll go with that. Oh my goodness. Did a car accident bring the real Michael Kovac back to his faith? No. Unlike in the movie, The Right, he was not a seminarian who had lost his faith. He was actually a 50-year-old priest at the time. He was asked by his bishop to participate in an exorcism course. Nice. The course was titled Exorcism and the Prayer of Liberation. That's the name of it. All right. Was Father Carmine ever taken over by a demon? Because in the movie, he was. It says, no. Unlike the movie, the real Lucas Trevant, Father Carmine, was never possessed by a demon. However, like all exorcists, he can be and claims that he is often attacked by demons. I believe it. So he's attacked, but they don't get in. You get that close, you run the risk. Hmm. Did Father Thomas's dad really die after a premonition? No. The, the book does not support that element of the movie. That is just drama. Did they really encounter a child with hoof prints on him? No, they did not. Um, not with regard to this story, but it says, however, having marks, letters, or signs appearing on a victim's body for no apparent reason is not unheard of. A physical attack, which can also include pushing and hitting, is categorized as oppression. Um, one of the four types of demonic extraordinary activities that they look for, you know, Mm -hmm. when they're deciding if you're possessed. How many exorcisms has the real-life priest done since completing his training? In his first five years doing this work, he has performed over 40 exorcisms on five people. Oh, boy. So in five years, he exorcised five people, but he did it more than 40 times. He's obviously uh, not very good at getting them out for good. (laughs) Right? Very inefficient. He should really streamline that. How many hoaxes does Father Thomas typically encounter? Ooh, that's a good question. Ooh. The real Reverend Gary Thomas does not consider any person seeking help as a hoax. While many people truly believe they are in need of an exorcism, few actually do. It is for this reason that everyone requesting the service is put through a variety of tests conducted by his team, which includes a clinical psychologist, psychiatrist, physician, two additional priests, and occasionally other professionals like therapists who will help him determine a course of action. This process is referred to as discernment. If everyone is in agreement, the request is made to the bishop who gives the final word. Yep. Yeah, I knew it was like a whole big thing that you had to go through to prove that you really were possessed. But I'm glad that there's doctors and psychologists and stuff involved. Um, Has Father Thomas ever witnessed anything similar to the infamous scene in the movie The Exorcist? So, like, are we talking pea soup or what? Uh, Probably her head spinning all the way around. Uh, It says, despite the fact that the story was based on a real exorcism that took place in the Washington, D.C. area, he says there are no spinning heads, spewing pea soup, 
or levitating bodies like Linda Blair's character experienced in the 1973 film. Good to know. Does participating in this movie open up the actors to demonic possession? No. When asked that question by two of the actors and the producer of the film, Priest Gary could only respond, possibly. (laughs) He's just trying to get more work. Where does Father Thomas work now? He is a priest at the Sacred Heart Parish Church in Saratoga, California, as well as the mandated exorcist for the Diocese of San Jose. So he's official. He's legit. How much of his time is spent performing exorcisms? The real Father Michael Kovac, which is Priest Thomas, estimates that about six hours a week, or 15% of his work hours, are at, on average, are spent doing exorcisms. What? Six hours a week are spent doing exorcisms? Research. He, it says spent doing exorcisms. Like working on exorcism cases? Because that's a lot different than actually performing an exorcism. Yeah. We need some editing on that one. Some, some co- mm-hmm. co-writes on who's writing these articles. Like, clarification, guys. There's a difference here. Yeah, because that's, that's a lot if that's what he's doing. Highly suspect. Yeah, those are the deets behind the true story of the movie The Right. But still, that movie is really good. I like it that is movie really a good. lot. I did. I yeah. was not mad at that. It wasn't my favorite exorcism movie out there, but Anthony Hopkins brings it around. <laughs> he is so creepy when he wants to be. Yeah, my husband said that he can't watch him in any movie regardless of his role because his first one was Silence of the Lambs. Oh, (laughs) jeez. I love that one. (laughs) Love it. (laughs) Some nice fava beans. (laughs) Our topic today was horror movies inspired by true stories, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. True stories, true cases. Well... All the horror movies that I love were all inspired by a single man and the acts that he committed throughout his life. Okay. So you've seen Psycho, right? Yes. Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Sure. The Silence of the Lambs. Absolutely. House of a Thousand Corpses or The Devil's Rejects. Sure. And then there's one more, Deranged, from 1974. I hadn't seen that. I but don't think I've seen that. It looks good. All of these movies were inspired by the acts of Ed Gein. Hmm. Hmm? Hmm. I don't know who that is. Oh my lord. Okay. <laughs> All right, guys. Cindy has chosen to step down as her... <laughs> Spot of podcaster of all things I've spooky, been fired, been fired from my own yeah. podcast in all fairness though you're more into like ghosts and spooky stuff instead of serial killers yeah okay that's true okay 
Although I did just start watching that Dahmer show on Netflix. I've only seen the first episode. I finished it yesterday. You finished it yesterday? <laughs> I, I binged it in two days. Nice. Yeah. I mean, I liked the first episode for sure. But I love that guy. I love Evan name? Peters. Evan Peters. Fantastic. Love that guy. Fantastic. Yep. So Ed Gein, and, and Ed Gein has been portrayed in a lot of movies about his life and the acts that he committed. Now, the thing that sets Ed Gein apart from a lot of the other serial killers around that time, because obviously the era of serial killers moves between the 70s and 90s. <clears throat> Most of them were born in the 60s, so late 70s into the 90s is the, the age of serial killers. Ed Gein wasn't actually a serial killer. He only killed one person. Well, he killed two people, but he only remembers doing one of them. So that was what he was hmm. convicted for. Are we sure of that? Yes. Okay. So Edward Theodore Gein was born August 27th, 1906. And he died at the age of 77 in Ju on July 26th, 1984. He is known as the Butcher of Plainfield or the Plainfield Ghoul. Hmm. Now, Gein was born in La Crosse, Wisconsin to George and Augusta Gein. He was one of two boys. He had an older brother named Henry. His mother, August Miss Augusta, she was a very devout Lutheran. Okay, and I mean devout the world is full of crime and hoodlums and whores and just <laughs> awful, awful people. And the boys should never go anywhere near these awful, awful people. She would often, she, every day she would sit down with the boys and preach from the Old Testament. So she would read the Old Testament, which oh, if my. any of you guys know anything about the Old Testament, it's just full of fire and brimstone. Now, his father, uh, George, was an alcoholic and was unable to keep jobs because of his alcoholism. He did own a small grocery store, but ended up selling it and bought a 155-acre farm in Plainfield, Wisconsin, which is where he moved the family to. Now, obviously, nice. a hundred, right, 155 acres, that's a fair amount of land. So oh, yeah. it's out in the middle of nowhere. Augusta saw this as an even better way to keep her children from the evils of the world. And while the boys did go to school, they were forbidden to make friends they would go to school and they would come home immediately. And if they talked about making friends, they were punished because wow. those were, those were demon kids out there. And so her psychosis made her kids crazy. Probably. Now, George, Ed, Ed Gein's father, he died in 1940 of a heart failure due to his alcoholism. Mm -hmm. That left the boys as the sole earners for the house in order to take care of everything. So they would do odd jobs around town. 
Now, one morning they were clearing out some marshland, and the best way to do that is with fire, just burn it out. And this was in 1944. The fire got out of hand. Ed was able to escape, contacted authorities, couldn't find his brother. And Mm. after the fire had been cleared, his brother's body was found. There, the cause of death was official as asphyxiation due to the smoke and the fire. Mm -hmm. However, there were specul there was speculation that there was possible head trauma and his body had been dead days before the fire. Oh my gosh! Leading, leading the the possible death to Ed. Was never proven, never followed up on. They just suspected it. Now, this left Ed alone with his mother. And again, she's still she's still going on isolation here. Mm-hmm. Now, after Ed's brother died, his mother suffered a pretty bad stroke afterwards. And so Ed was the sole caretaker for his mother. Well, now it definitely sounds like psycho. Right. He was the sole caretaker. He would dress her and bathe her and uh, move her around the house. He would read to her and they were just... He often described his mother as his only friend, the love of his life. He couldn't imagine being without her. However, she did die in December of 1945. So now Ed's all alone. And he thinks that everybody is the devil. Right, exactly. So he's 39 years old. And he is all by himself on this 155-acre farm outside of Plainfield, Mm. Wisconsin. All by himself. I don't know. That sounds like a little slice of heaven to me. Right. (laughs) Now fast forward to November of 1957. Bernice Warden has disappeared. She was the local hardware store owner, and her last receipt was for a gallon of antifreeze sold to Ed Gein. Mm. That afternoon, Bernice's son came into the store, noticed that his mother was missing, found this receipt, went to the police and was like, guys, my mom is missing. This is the last guy, you know, this this Ed guy. He must have been the last person to see my mom alive. We need to go talk to him. So the police went out to the farm, knocked on the door of the, the house. Nobody answered. So they said, okay, nobody's here. And they went around to kind of look around and see what was up. There was a large shed on the property, and when the police entered, they were not prepared in any way for what they were going to find. So this is where we add in our disclaimer of uh, heavy gore and bodily mutilation. So if any of you guys are queasy to that, just skip to the end where we say thank you for being an awesome patron. (laughs) The police found... Bernice Warden's body strung up in the barn. She was hanging by her feet, so she was hanging upside down, Mm -hmm. decapitated. 
Ew. She was naked, and her torso was cut from her genitals up to the neck. So he gutted her. Just like you would dress out a deer. Yeah. At this point, police realize what they have on hand. And they're like, oh shit, we need, like, someone go find Gein. And we need to arrest this guy. While they went to look for Gein, the police entered the house. And they found a whole collection of stuff. So they found whole human bone bones and fragments so parts of bones and whole bones they found a waste basket made of human skin Hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. there had been human skin coverings on several of the chair seats so he had Hmm. had a chair and had skin as the place where you sit there was skulls on the bed on the four bed posts surrounding his bed there were female skulls some with the tops sawn off there was in the kitchen they found bowls made from human skulls hmm. they found a corset made from a female torso that had been skinned from the shoulders to the waist they found leggings made from human skin. So the, Ew. the leg, oh the skin off of legs was made into leggings. What is that one company, LuLaRue or something? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Y'all, we have a new fashion idea. Right. <laughs> it feels like you're wearing nothing. <laughs> They found um, several masks made from the skin of female faces. If he only killed one person, where's he getting all this from? We're we're gonna, you're gonna find out. Okay. Now, there was another victim that he had killed by the name of Mary Hogan. And there, she, they found her face in a, in a paper bag. Just her face. They found her skull in another box. Bernice Warden's head. So the Miss Warden's head was found in a burlap sack. Her heart was in a plastic bag that was sitting in front of his potbelly stove. Mm -mm. He was about to eat that. In the kitchen, they did find several pots filled with organs and various other body parts that were appeared to have been being cooked down they found nine vulva in a shoebox <laughs> what oh yep. my god what they found a belt made from h- human nipples <laughs> they found no various body parts in boxes including noses in one box uh, ears in another box Um, they found a pair of lips on a window drawstring shade so where you pull to pull your windows up there was a pair of lips as the pull for that his entire house was just made of all these 
yep. human parts. God almighty. They also found a lampshade made from the skin of faces. Now, I've heard about that before, but I didn't know that was him. That's Gein. That's messed up. Didn't he have books like that, too? No books. <laughs> oh, okay. Just uh, home decor. <laughs> Golly. Right? So, his mom did not teach him how to decorate his house properly. Now, That's police did find Gein at a grocery store, and he was arrested, obviously. Was he buying chicken skin? Because that would be funny. <laughs> did not I did not say what he was purchasing at the grocery store. Oh god. So when under questioning, Gein admitted that from the years of 1947 to 1952, he was an active grave robber. Nice. That's so, what I must that's what I was figuring. He went to graves over 30 40 times but he only came back with nine bodies from these graves he often said that uh, he when he would awake in the in the cemetery after being in a daze like state not remember how he got there and would go back home Sometimes, though, he was awake enough in, in a well enough state to actually dig up the graves. And they were usually graves of women who had recently deceased that he felt resembled his mother. Hmm. After his mother's wow. death, obviously, like we said, he took that very, very hard. They He worked on creating a women's suit. So... He he would bring these bodies home from these women and he would skin certain parts off of them and tan the skin and start assembling this woman's suit because he said he wanted to become his mother and crawl into her skin. Oh, God. Yeah. No. That's, That's taken Mama's Boy on a whole new level. But now you can see where they brought the part from Silence of the Lambs in. Yeah. Now, when asked, he did deny having sex with any of the corpses due to them smelling bad. Oh, wow. But what about the two that he killed himself? Nope. No. No sexual exploits on that. Wow. When asked on why he killed Bernice Warden or Mary Hogan, uh, he said that he did not remember killing Mary Hogan. And that, but he must have done it since he had her body. When asked about Bernice Warden, he said that he went to visit her house and had a shotgun with him. And when he loaded it, it accidentally went off. He didn't mean to shoot her, but it happened. And so he took the body back home and was preparing it because after a while he realized that corpses their skin just isn't as supple and pliable Mm. it's too dried out and not very Mm. movable right because it's off dead people so that's why they think he started to go looking for women who were alive so that their skin would be well moisturized and taken Mm -hmm. care of fresh fresh exactly (laughs) it puts the lotion on its skin exactly (laughs) 
1957, in November, they went to trial and Gein pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. I think I'd give him that one. He was diagnosed with schizophrenia, and he was placed in the Mendota State Hospital in Madison, Wisconsin. Now, 11 years later, in 1968, uh, doctors deemed Gein mentally able to confer with counsel. So they held a second trial without a jury at the request of the defense, and they only convicted Gein of one murder for Mrs. Warden, because they didn't have sufficient proof for Mary Hogan's death, but they're pretty sure he killed her. Well, yeah, if he had her body. Right. Now, he was again charged, uh, deemed guilty, but still by reason of insanity, and he was sentenced to live out the rest of his life in the Mendota State Hospital in Madison, Wisconsin where he died on July 26th, 1984, at the age of 77. Mm. Now, what happens after is pretty crazy, too. So, what happened afterwards of everything, they tried, they were going to auction off his property with the house and everything, and all of his possessions, and everything that was in there, obviously not human related because they had to take Who those out. Who bought the nipple belt? You know, somebody bought the nipple belt. <laughs> Two weeks before the auction, the house was destroyed by a fire. Hmm. Somebody did that. Mm-hmm. As well, they should have. I, I don't have a problem with they that. They went to auction off his truck and... A week before that auction, it was destroyed in a fire as well. Yep. That checks out. After his death, obviously, he was buried. uh, And he's buried between his mother and uh, his brother in the cemetery. People would come to his gravesite and would chip off pieces of his headstone as souvenirs. Ew, why? That's bad mojo. Right? That's bad juju. Eventually, in in 2000, the whole headstone itself was taken. Hmm. Later discovered in 2001 near Seattle, Washington. They took it back and placed it in the Washara County Sheriff's Office. The gravesite itself is still now unmarked so as to avoid any further vandalism. But again, they know, people know where he's buried because he's buried between uh, his parents and his brother in the cemetery. Hmm. I do not understand the logic of that. I mean, as a person who is really sensitive to energies and stuff, I would not, double not, want that guy's headstone chip in my possession. Mm-hmm. No, thank you. Now, there was a lot of speculation as well as, you know, why did he do this? Like, what? Okay, he's making a women's suit, but like, why keep all the rest of this stuff and, you know, do all these things with these bodies? And it's speculated that he did not have a very high IQ. So he wasn't, he didn't really understand that what he was doing was bad. Mm. And because of the 
you know, the way he was raised back then, you don't waste anything. Yeah. Right? So you've got the parts that you need. Let's not waste anything. And yeah, there's just a... So again, a lot of movies have been inspired by Ed Gein's acts and the things that he did. I mean, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you've got Leatherface. In Psycho, you've got the boy that is ever devoted to his mother and her, you know, whims. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, House of a Thousand Corpses is a pretty good depiction of what his house actually looked like with everything Mm. in there. Like I said, I hadn't seen the movie called Deranged, and that came out in 1974, but from reading the synopsis and the backstory of it, it does seem to be a pr- they they describe it as being a pretty accurate depiction of his life and the acts that he did afterward after his mother died. Um, wow. And then, of course, Silence of the Lambs. That the the character Buffalo Bill is actually comprised of several different serial killers. Um, one of those being Gein. He just snapped i don't know that's that's a broken human mind Mm -hmm. right there so i'm so surprised you've never heard of him though (laughs) well i just i recognize the name but i couldn't place it to what what he did you know Mm -hmm. so but i have heard of the lampshade that's made of like human faces and stuff i i'd heard of that Mm -hmm. not the lip drawstrings or the <laughs> nipple belt or whatever like yeah that's that's bizarre he basically just pieced human bodies apart and just kind of put the pieces wherever he happened to look in the room that he thought oh that fits there and that fits there and yep and his skulls just... as decorations for the ends mm-hmm. of your bedposts and bowls made out of skulls and yeah. I do have a metal skull, not a real one, a metal skull on my mantle in my living room. <laughs> not a real one, she says with No, not a real one. With conviction. It's the metal one that my son bought me from a Renaissance fair he went to. <laughs> I do, however, have that human hair on my piano in my living room. Yeah. That is a real thing that I have. You're asking to get haunted on that one. <laughs> Well, it's been there for a couple of years now, so. (laughs) This has turned out to be a very long bonus episode. Oh, goodness. So. (laughs) Well, we definitely appreciate you amazing patrons, and we hope that that this was a good extra, extra bonus episode for you, because it was so long. You know, sometimes it's nice to just sit back and listen to a bunch of creepy, spooky things. Based on true events. Yeah, there you go. True stories behind horror movies. Nailed it. Awesome pick, (laughs) you guys. I love it. Yes, so much yes. And we will see you in the next one. And until then, spooky later. Ooh.